Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub on the 12th of February. Up first is Heather Exner-Piro writing on Canada and critical minerals. From the acquisition of a rare earths stockpile from a mine in the Northwest Territories to the purchasing of stakes in Canadian miners' Solaris Resources and First Quantum, a recent spate of Chinese investment in Canadian mining projects has rightly sparked concerns. In the past three years, many Western nations, including Canada, have put out critical mineral strategies to promote friendly sources of supply and mitigate Chinese dominance in the sector. Yet we are still falling behind. At the same time, one empathizes with Canadian miners looking to China for investment. They are not finding it anywhere else. Junior and mid-sized miners are starved for capital, even as Western politicians are proclaiming their commitment to the sector. Thankfully, there is a solution to the challenge of both reducing dependence on Chinese-controlled exports and boosting Western investment in our own supply. It is time to establish strategic reserves for critical minerals. The concept has plenty of precedent. While many today will know the International Energy Agency, IEA, from its efforts to transition off fossil fuels, it was originally created in 1974 following a series of oil shocks with a mandate to mitigate oil supply disruptions. Its members include most of Europe, North America, Japan, Korea, New Zealand, and Australia. Its primary tool for managing oil supplies was the establishment of strategic reserves. IEA members are required, to this day, to hold oil stocks equivalent to at least 90 days of net imports. Canada, as one of a handful of oil exporters in the IEA, requires no such reserve. The utility of those oil reserves was demonstrated in 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine and disrupted global commodity markets, leading to price spikes. A coordinated release amongst IEA members followed, with the Biden administration leading the way. The U.S. released over 200 million barrels from their Strategic Petroleum Reserve, SPR, over a series of months, which succeeded in bringing prices down at the pump. It was a double win for the American taxpayer. Those barrels were sold at an average of $95 a barrel. Replacement barrels are now being purchased in the $70 range. A number of forces are conspiring to make now the right time for Western nations to collectively establish critical reserves of minerals. First is their key role in the energy transition. The IEA itself estimates we will need six times more minerals by 2040 to meet net zero goals. We are nowhere near mining that amount. In fact, global mineral production peaked in 2019. Canada's own production of critical minerals such as copper, nickel, cobalt and zinc is actually in decline. Second is the need to enhance Western supply chain independence. Our most urgent problem is Chinese dominance in both the mining and processing of many critical minerals. But in general, minerals are geographically concentrated, often in politically unstable regions, adding vulnerability to supply chains. The West must find ways to mitigate those risks to sustain an energy transition by producing more of our own supply, diversifying suppliers where that's not possible, and stockpiling for when all else fails. 
third is the inability of miners to attract more investment despite expectations of growing demand. Global capital expenditures in mining peaked in 2013. While investment has risen since the market bottomed in 2017, spending levels are still only two-thirds what they were a decade ago. That figure doesn't account for inflation and the addition of a billion people, which makes the situation look even more dire. Investors are still scared off by their losses from when the last cycle went bust, as well as a lack of public support for extraction, regulatory burdens, volatility, supply chain risks, long timelines, and other factors. Mining is struggling to compete with other sectors for capital. Some countries, such as Japan, already stockpile critical minerals and commercial reserves exist across the world. The United States also has a national defense stockpile, but its current value is a rounding error compared to the height of the Cold War, and it is seeking to build it up. But an uncoordinated, every-man-for-themselves approach carries its own risks. We do not want Western nations competing against each other for scarce resources, something we saw drive up global LNG costs in 2022. Minerals behave very differently in global markets than oil, and they vary from one to another, too. It won't be as easy as replicating the system for oil, but at some level, the concept of a critical minerals reserve should be to establish a floor for commodity prices that is high enough to spur development in Western and other friendly jurisdictions, perhaps in take-or-pay types of arrangements. The goal is not just to establish minimum reserves, but to incent new production. The devil will be in the details and thought will need to go into maximizing the security of supply without needlessly distorting market forces. But governments should prepare to apply the one thing they have that the market currently lacks, a source of patient capital. There is no doubt that our collective security is put at risk by the current state of the critical minerals market. Investment is not flowing at the rate we will need to ensure balanced markets in the coming decade. We are becoming very susceptible to supply shocks that will drive inflation, disrupt economic development, hamper energy diversification, and embolden producers of key minerals that do not have the West's best interests at heart. Canadian foreign policy has been lackluster of late. One area where we are still looked upon to lead and retain some ability to do so is in natural resources. Coming up with solutions to the problem of critical minerals supply that leverages the collective experience of our mining and investment community is an obvious place for Canada to contribute. That was a commentary by Heather exner Piro. She is the Director of Energy at the McDonald laurier Institute. You can find the full text of their article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay today is by Stephen Globerman, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute. He is writing today on Singapore's stunning economic growth. Over the past 10 years, Canada's per-person GDP, a common measure of living standards, grew at just 0.8% per year on average, which was Canada's slowest decadal rate of growth since the 1930s. And you can't blame COVID because Canada's average per-person GDP growth during this period was almost 30% less than in the United States. Why is this happening? Many economists have pointed to declining business investment in Canada after 2014 as the major contributor to stagnant labor productivity growth and slow overall real economic growth. Unless there's a greater incentive for the private sector to invest in machinery and equipment, information technology, 
software, and other productivity-enhancing assets, Canada's economic performance will continue to disappoint. In response, the Trudeau government, which claims to recognize the importance of greater private sector investment, has made increased immigration and a net-zero emission plan the basis of its growth strategy. But those policies are more likely to discourage business investment by discouraging the substitution of capital for labor as wage growth is suppressed and climate regulation increases the cost of doing business. However, if the government wants to genuinely promote productive capital investment, it should study the experience of Singapore. Since gaining independence in 1965, Singapore's economic performance has been remarkable. In 1961, Singapore's per-person GDP was only 20% of that of the U.S. By 2020, the two countries were essentially identical on this crucial economic measure. Strong capital investment has spurred Singapore's economic growth. Over the past five decades, only Korea has outperformed Singapore in the rate of capital investment due in part to Singapore's openness to inward foreign direct investment which stands in stark contrast to Canada's restrictions on foreign investment across a range of industries including banking and telecommunications. Another feature is taxation. Corporate income in Singapore is taxed at a flat 17% rate compared to a 26.5% corporate tax rate, federal plus provincial, in Ontario, for example. Correspondingly, government spending as a share of Singapore's economy is around 15% compared to more than 40% in Canada. The relatively low rate of government spending and taxation in Singapore partially reflects Singapore's unique reliance on personal savings accounts to fund social services that in most Western countries are paid for by the government. In Singapore, personal savings accounts, funded primarily by payroll taxes, can be used to pay for health care, education, housing, and retirement, among other things. The government subsidizes savings accounts for low-income earners. To be sure, Singapore is not a free market nirvana. Through its sovereign wealth fund, the Singaporean government invests in private sector companies and provides financial subsidies, also known as corporate welfare, to attract business investment. Still, According to the latest Economic Freedom of the World report, Singapore's economy is the freest in the world, while Canada's ranked 10th when considering factors such as protection of property rights, freedom to trade internationally, and limited government regulation. Canada and Singapore obviously differ substantially with respect to culture, political and economic institutions, and historical experience. For these and other reasons, adopting Singapore's economic model in totality is unrealistic. Nevertheless, if Canadian policymakers want to emulate some of Singapore's economic success and increase living standards, they should strengthen the fundamental linkage between investment risk-taking and the rewards for assuming investment risk. That was a commentary by Stephen Globerman published in today's Hub. He is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. You can find the full text of their article on our website, thehub.ca. Up next is Anthony Anderson writing on Pierre Trudeau in the 80s. Only four prime ministers have come back from the political grave. Sir John A. MacDonald, William Lyon, Mackenzie King, 
Arthur Mee in, if only for a few months, and Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Their peers either looked at the numbers and retired to avoid evisceration, or lingered, lost and languished, in the thankless limbo of loyal opposition, before limping away to elder statesmanship. By the spring of 1979, Trudeau had wielded power for 11 years. Full of all the turbulence a healthy democracy generates, his great accomplishment was to embody and bring the French fact, as it was called, into Ottawa, and more importantly, into the national imagination. After Trudeau, there was no going back to a dysfunctional federation where citizens who spoke one of the country's official languages were cut off from essential government services and seats of power and a sense of belonging. To govern is to piss off one's fellow citizens, and Trudeau had done his fair share of that. He had confronted grumbling provinces, nothing new, and looked, depending on one's geography, like a strong leader fighting for national dreams or a malevolent, centralizing Central Canadian, as if to mock his efforts and at the same time underline how essential his efforts remained. The Separatist Parti Québécois had come to power in Quebec in 1976, and suddenly the entire national experiment seemed to hang in the balance. On that point, many Canadians were grateful a Francophone Prime Minister was making a credible case for keeping the show on the road. But the philosopher King was also compelled to tackle the more prosaic, though equally critical challenges of stagflation, inflation, recessions, oil shocks, and other economic plagues that defied easy remedies in Canada and the rest of the struggling Western economies. No matter how intensely newspaper editorials and economists thundered out their solutions. By 1979, Trudeau was admired and loathed, familiar and yet still singular, brilliant and disconnected. And then his time ran out. He had to call the election for May 1979. This was his first campaign against newish opposition leaders, Joe Clark, Progressive Conservative, and Ed Broadbent, NDP. In this generally forgettable contest, there were no knockout punches or game-changing blunders. Clark was fresh and decent but never compelling enough. Trudeau was a known quantity, for better and for worse. One of the best political observers of the era, Ron Graham, wrote, Canadians had shown themselves willing to put up with a lot of his arrogance and foibles for the sake of his obvious qualities. But if they were to be led by the weak and confused, then at least Joe Clark was nice. For all the electorate's ambivalence and fatigue, the Liberals won the popular vote, 40% to 36% for the Conservatives. However, as often happens in the confounding first-past-the-post shuffling the Tories, secured the most seats, 136 to the Liberals, 114. The NDP took 26. Ignoring parliamentary rights and following local custom, Trudeau declined to cobble together support from the smaller parties so he could remain in power. Clark, the youngest PM in Canadian history, would prop up his stay in the PMO on the six seats held by a Quebec protest party, the Rallyment des Créditistes. That election night, Trudeau consoled sobbing supporters in a ballroom at the Chateau Laurier with a line from the much-invoked Desiderata. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it's still a beautiful world. Strive to be happy. 
In the months after the election laws, Trudeau did strive to do his duty from an unfamiliar vantage point on the opposition benches. But he also seemed to get bored with the job description. Go on canoe trips, grow a beard, shave it off, and, in the wake of his failed marriage, dote on his three young boys. He wandered all over the emotional map. And then, in November, aged 60, he announced his resignation as Liberal leader. A turbulent, creative season in Canadian politics was surely drawing to a close. Again, a joyous relief to some citizens, a deep loss for others. Trudeau no doubt read his political obituaries, which, when not simply negative, shared a note of disappointment that he hadn't lived up to his potential, though given the mania that surrounded his first years in power, what mere mortal could? While his wise biographer John English judged rightly that those political obituaries mirrored recent controversies rather than mature reflection. Even Professor English conceded, had Trudeau's political life ended in 1979, he would probably not have ranked among the great Canadian prime ministers. The middling verdicts must have stung such a fierce competitor. And then there was the looming referendum in Quebec, which the separatists had called once they knew their most formidable foe was withdrawing from the battlefield. Despite the public show of unanimity, not everyone in the Liberal Party shed tears in private, especially not in Ontario or the West. There were significant numbers, respectful of his public service, who wanted a change and strong, attractive contenders hovered in the wings with promises of a return to power. In the meantime, Joe Clark, who had declared that he would govern as if he had a majority, was learning on the job all about the galling gap between promises and solid ground. He had to reverse his pledge to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He could no more easily make peace with the endlessly grumbling premiers than his supposedly high-handed predecessor. His notion of Canada as a community of communities was perhaps more subtle and true than Trudeau's championing of one Canada, but it didn't have that ring of passion that even modest Canadians crave from time to time. And then on December 13th, to restore financial health, the government introduced a budget packed with the bitter medicine of steep taxes. The Liberals were down, officially leaderless, but nowhere near out. They were doing well in the polls, and enough of them sniffed an opening in their opponent's plan to inflict pain on the smokers, beer drinkers, and gas guzzlers of the land. In that jolly Christmas season, influential caucus members stoked ambitions, rallied courage, and molded the decision to bring down the government a mere seven months after the election. Our parliamentary system was made for this mix of ruthlessness and principle. Clark's team missed warning signs, underestimated their opponent's resolve, failed to take care of the creditists whose six votes were absolutely vital, and did not do their sums properly. Late on the evening of December 13, to their utter astonishment, the Conservatives lost the all-important vote of confidence. Having toppled the government, the Liberals had to figure out who would lead them into the next election. No obvious thing for days. Loyal backroom advisers and MPs went to work on doubters and critics in caucus, and most critically on Trudeau himself. His boys were central in his calculations, but the referendum was coming in May, and he wanted to patriata the amending formula and bring in a charter of rights. 
The Federalist side needed a champion, and it was hard to pinpoint anyone in the House of Commons who would care about the Constitution with the same precision and tenacity. He was not one for turning away. So he returned. In February 1980, defying the odds of history, Trudeau managed his release from loyal opposition and savored another majority triumph, anchored in Quebec, erased in Western Canada, a schism for another leader to heal. In what he knew all too well was his final round, he achieved his great victories, controversial and inconclusive as these things are, in our ongoing work in progress. But who else would have defeated the separatists in the referendum, buying precious time? brought in a charter of rights that causes us, properly, to constantly weigh and argue over balances of power between elected officials and appointed judges and citizens, and patriot the amending formula completing an odyssey towards independence begun by Sir Robert Borden. When he stepped down for good in 1984, he would have seen that in his second retirement he had recast both his country and his political obituaries. Not bad for a world of sham, drudgery, and broken dreams. That was Anthony Anderson appearing in today's Hub. He is a senior fellow at the Bill Graham Center. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to the Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.